our, our scripture text this morning comes from John chapter 4, and I'll be reading verses 5 through 42. He came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, which was near the land that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Jesus was tired from his journey, so he sat down at the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to the well to draw water. Jesus says, give me some water to drink. His disciples had gone into the city to buy him some food. The Samaritan woman asked, why do you, a Jewish man, ask for something to drink from me, a Samaritan woman? Jews and Samaritans didn't associate with one another. Jesus responded, if you recognize God's gift and who it was who was saying to you, give me some water to drink, you would be asking him and he would give you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you don't have a bucket and the well is deep. Where would you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave this well to us and he drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give will never be thirsty again. The water I give will become in those who drink it a spring of water that bubbles up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't never be thirsty and never need to come here and draw water. Jesus said to her, go and get your husband and come back here. The woman replied, I don't have a husband. You are right to say I don't have a husband, Jesus answered. You have had five husbands and the man you are with now isn't your husband. You have spoken the truth. The woman said, sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you and your people say that it is necessary to worship in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Believe me, woman, the time is coming when you and your people will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You and your people worship what you do not know, and we worship what we know, because salvation is from the Jews. But the time is coming, and indeed is here, when true worshippers will worship in spirit and in truth. The Father looks for those who worship him in this way. God is spirit, and it is necessary to worship God in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will teach everything to us. Jesus said to her, I am the one who speaks with you. Just then, Jesus' disciples arrived and were shocked that he was talking with a woman. But no one dared ask, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? The woman put down her water jug and went into the city. She said to the people, come and see a man who has told me everything I have done. Could this man be the Christ? They left the city and were on their way to see Jesus. In the meantime, the disciples spoke to Jesus saying, Rabbi, eat. Jesus said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. The disciples asked each other, has someone brought him food? Jesus said to them, I am fed by doing the will of the one who sent me and by completing his work. Don't you have a saying, four more months and then it is the harvest? Look, I tell you, open your eyes and notice the fields are already ripe for the harvest. Those who harvest are receiving their pay and gathering fruit for eternal life so that those who sow and those who harvest can celebrate together. This is a true saying that one sows and another harvests. I have sent you to harvest what you didn't work for. Others worked hard and you will share in their hard work. Many Samaritans in that city believed in Jesus because of the woman's word when she testified. He told me everything that I had ever done. 
So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days. Many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said, for we have heard ourselves and know that this one is truly the Savior of the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Jesus is on his way. As Jesus often is, he's on his way here on this day and at this time from Judea or Jerusalem in the south to Galilee in the north. Uh, We don't know how often Jesus went down to Jerusalem, um, at least three times, because in his public ministry he was at Passover three times, most likely. But but the the Gospel of John is interesting because as, as we read John, we find Jesus often in either Galilee or Judea or on his way in between the two. In my mind, and, and what I think and what I read, it says that Jesus often traveled south and north to be in Jerusalem, to teach there, to worship there, to celebrate feasts there, and oftentimes found himself traveling in between the two. Now, there, there are two basic ways that, that a person of Jesus' time could have gotten from Jerusalem and Judea in the south to Galilee, Capernaum, where his home base was in the north. There is um, a road that goes up along the Jordan River, um, kind of from Jericho, which is just east of Jerusalem and down into the Jordan River Valley. You could go along the Jericho Road, so you go down through Jericho, up north, up along the Jordan River, up into Galilee. This, this is the way that most Jews went from Jerusalem in the south to Galilee in the north. Um, ironically enough, this was the longer way, and this was the more dangerous way for them to travel. Um, because in between uh, Judea in the south and, and the Galilee in the north was this little plot of land called Samaria. Uh, Samaria was, uh, in, in Old Testament times, the capital of what was the northern kingdom of Israel. So just brief history, uh, right after uh, Solomon's son, in fact, during his reign, uh, the, Israel split into two kingdoms, Ju- Judah in the south and uh, the kingdom of Israel in the north. Okay? And, and they, they maintained two separate kingdoms, two separate kings, two separate forms of worship. Okay, That's the short version. There's much, much longer. So in the north was the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom was conquered by Assyria and was carried off into exile. And Syria populated that land with a whole bunch of their people. The people there intermarried and, and were kind of a, looked down on by their neighbors in the south. They were looked as un unclean as sort of mixed race. Um, they, were, they were seen as people who didn't worship in the right way or, or worship at the right place. Okay, so Samaria is that land in New Testament times. And, and Jews really didn't like to, to associate with Samaritans. Samaritans didn't really like to associate with Jews. There wasn't a whole lot of mixture, right? You, you might do business together, but you didn't socialize together. Okay. And so most, most Jews in, in Jesus' time would, would go along the Jericho Road. Um, you can see on the kind of the right side of that picture, that's the Jordan River, and they would kind of go up that way. Some, Jesus included, more than once, decided to journey through Samaria. What's interesting about this text, and, and John often does things like this as he writes about Jesus' journeys and about the things Jesus do, did. He says that it was necessary that Jesus went to Galilee. And it was necessary that Jesus traveled through Samaria. Jesus had to go, is what it says. Now, 
we're probably not to read this as if Jesus had a pressing engagement in Galilee. Now, may, he may have, but likely what we're talking about is, is something, and here's a theological term if you want to write it down, is the divine necessity. Often in Jesus' life, we hear this, it is necessary that. It was necessary that, or Jesus had to. We read this as, as hearing that these are things that, that Jesus had to do as part of his ministry. This is part of God's plan. So we're to read this, this text from its beginning with the understanding that what Jesus does in this text and the things that occur in this text are not just happenstance or incidental. They are necessary as God works God's plan of redemption and salvation in and through Jesus. Okay, that's a loaded setup, I know. So as Jesus is going through Samaria, he stops at a place called Sychar. Uh, Sychar is, um, is a place that, uh, I, in the map, that's where the dot is, right? That's Sychar. Sychar is sort of significant because there was a well in Sychar that was dug and used by Jacob, the ancestor, right? One of the great patriarchs. So it's a landmark of special significance, but it was this landmark that was still in use as people drew water and drank there. Sychar, in the land of Samaria. We're told by John that it was noon, Now, I don't know if it was summer or winter, but I'm guessing it was summer because we're told Jesus was hot and Jesus was tired. And there's nothing better when you're hot and you're tired is to find some shade and some water and drink deeply. And so Jesus stops at the well. He goes into Stycar and he stops at the well, but, but an interesting feature about this particular well in this particular place, it wasn't like wells that we think about with the crank and the bucket. It was just a hole in the ground and Jesus had nothing with which to draw water. Is there any greater torture than being so close to water and yet not being able to drink? Interesting narrative setup for this particular passage of scripture. But as Jesus is there, his disciples lead him. They go into town to get groceries, right? To get him something to eat. And as Jesus is sitting there and as Jesus is waiting, a woman approaches Now, lots have been said about the time that the woman comes to the well, about what perhaps the reasoning is she comes at noon instead of morning or evening. John doesn't say any of that. He just says it's noon and she's coming to draw water. So it could be that there is some other purpose why she's coming at noon and not in the morning or in the evening. Or it could be that they ran out of water and she needed water at noon. So she's coming to draw water from the well. And as she approaches and begins to sort of lower her bucket into the water, Jesus asks for a drink. Now, this is not an unusual request on its face. There's a well there. Jesus has nothing to draw with. There is somebody who has something to draw with. Woman, give me a drink, he asks. But this is an unusual request because of who he is and who she is. In fact, it's a bit scandalous as she replies, Jesus is a Jew and she is a Gentile. I don't know how they knew this. It is endlessly fascinating to me to think of how did they know? Did they have accent changes? Did they just not speak the same language? Did he have, I don't know, a placard or a name tag? Did she? I don't know. But, but she knows that he's a Jew. And she certainly knows that she is a Samaritan. And so she says, because it's a scandal, why is it that you, a Jew, are to ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink of water? Right? She's scandalized. It's a scandal. 
He's not supposed to talk to her. Now, I don't know if it's a male, female thing, but, but John actually more frames it in a Jew and Samaritan thing. But they're not supposed to have interaction. They might do business together or, they, or something like that. They might have sort of incidental contact, but, but having a conversation and, and asking something from, from another person, this is big. But interestingly enough, Jesus is just a guy without water and nothing to draw with and simply wants water. If there's ever a simple interaction in the scriptures, this is one of them, at least on its face. But what, what's really interesting is that once this woman objects to, to the social interaction that's happening, Jesus doesn't press the matter. Do you notice that? It's noon, he's thirsty, he's weary from a long journey. He asks for a drink of water and she says, why would you ask me? I mean, the obvious answer is because you have something and I don't, right? But Jesus, as often seems to be the case in the Gospel of John, it's almost like the beginning interaction is just a pretext for what follows. Because Jesus says, if you knew who it was who was asking you for a drink of water, if you knew who was standing here in front of you, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. He would have given you living water that, that wells up to eternal life. Now, now, living water, again, we as Christians who live some many years later have a history of interpretation of this text. We immediately go to the spiritual definition of living water, right? It, most people in this room, if I were to say living water, you immediately sort of spiritualize it. This is what Jesus gives. He is the water, right? All this stuff. Living water probably for a first century mind, as Jesus would have said it to this woman, is not like spiritual. It's just bubbling water or water that's not just in a pool, but water that's running or flowing, or this is what is in my mind, like geysering, right? Water that's on the move. Water that's from a cool stream bubbling along, right? Moving water, living water, active water. So that's likely what the woman heard. Again, this is so John, because John often uses these, these words that have multiple meanings for us to dig deep and to understand what does this mean. And it, and it gives wonderful context for long, long passages of scripture where Jesus has interactions with people and explains. And we can see in them the gospel. But he says, I would give you living water. And the woman is, she's intrigued, but she's also confused. Okay, what has just happened? She has been asked by this person for water, and when she questions the occasion for asking the water, he simply says, well, I would give you water if you just asked. And so she's confused. Wait a minute. This well is deep. You have no rope, no bucket, and no jar. How in the world will you give me this living water? If you had it at your beck and call, drink and don't ask me. <laughs> Jesus is good at getting us to ask questions and dig deeper. I often think about this particular passage of scripture as Jesus is making her thirsty for something more. In what he's saying, because she keeps asking questions. She keeps being drawn in deeper and deeper into who Jesus is and what he has and what he has to offer. Wait, this is a deep well. You have nothing to draw with. How do you purpose 
to get this living water. Again, she's still thinking stream, flowing water, geyser, whatever it might be. And so she asks him, because she's incredulous, right? Oh, you think our water's no good? Are you better than our ancestor Jacob? Right, who dug this well, who drank from it himself, who, who gave it to his sons and they drank from it and his, and his flocks and his herd, they all drank from this well. Are you better than them? Are you greater than he is? <laughs> it's an interesting question, isn't it? It's a pretty loaded question, right? She's kind of offended. Are you really greater than our ancestor Jacob? Those of us who know the end of the story, we're like, yeah, (laughs) right? This is Jesus, son of God. He is greater, but she doesn't know. As is so often the case, again, it's so John, she just doesn't know what she is asking and saying, and she is speaking truth without knowing it. At least not yet. Are you greater? And Jesus doesn't answer that question directly, right? What could have Jesus said? Yep. I am. Let's talk about that. He didn't say that. What's fascinating about this text, Jesus continues to engage her in conversation. If you remember last week, we talked about Nicodemus, and Nicodemus sort of disappears halfway through the text. Right? It goes from dialogue to Jesus monologuing, which is fine. Jesus monologues are good because we learn lots and understand more. But, but in, in contrast to that text, to, to Nicodemus, who doesn't seem to get it, or it doesn't seem to be drawn deeper and deeper into this conversation. He just sort of dumbly, no, passively listens. That's a better word. Whereas here, the conversation, she's just engaged, right? If, if there's an engaged conversation partner in the scriptures, this is one of them, right? Sometimes we, we read it skeptically as if she's evasive or whatever. But, but notice she's engaged. She continues to ask questions. She continues to wonder about who this might be. Even now, she she may not know it yet, but she wants the water. She's thirsty. And so she asks, are you better? And Jesus says, let me tell you this. Deep though it may be, and long history though it may have, though it has watered the people of God for year after year after year after year and has not failed, he says to her, everyone who drinks from this water will have to come back. Jacob had to come back. The fox had to come back. You will have to come back. After you leave here today with your jug of water, you'll come back tomorrow because you will be thirsty again. But he says, everyone who drinks from the water that I will give will never be thirsty again. The water that I give will become in those who drink it springs of water that bubbles up into eternal life. Oh, now things are getting good, right? Now things are getting deep. Right? Uh, imagine, if you will, water that you drank only once and never had to drink again. Imagine if you never had to drink another th- sip of water again. Some of us like drinks just for the taste. But anyway, you know what I'm saying. Uh, imagine if you, if you drank something and knew you'd never be thirsty again. Knew you could walk around all day and be nourished and filled and never have to worry about being dehydrated. Uh, imagine living a life knowing I can just go up into the mountains as long as I find food, I'm good because I don't need water. That'd be pretty cool, wouldn't it? For her, imagine that you have to trudge to a well every day, draw water, fill a jar, bring it home. Wells weren't generally in the city center, right? They were out somewhere further out. 
she hears Jesus say about this water, she doesn't quite latch on to the eternal life part, but she hears the never will have to drink again. And what does she say? Give it to me, right? Give it to me now, right? <laughs> sir, give me this water. I, I, I'm trying to remember which translation says, sir, give this water to me always. It started out with a simple question from Jesus, and here's where it's going. A simple question, can I have some water to drink, has turned into this woman thirsty for what Jesus can give. Of course, she doesn't know exactly what that is yet. She knows she wants it. And here's where Jesus takes a real left turn. She doesn't want to have to draw water anymore. And Jesus says, okay, great. Go get your husband. And she says, I have no husband. And Jesus says, you're right. You're right in saying that you have no husband. In fact, you have had five husbands. And the guy you're with now ain't your husband. (laughs) Much has been made of that. And we don't know. We have it on the page. We don't know what Jesus' tone was in this. Was he reproving? Yeah, you've had five. And you're living in sin now. I don't know if that's what Jesus was saying. There are lots of reasons why a woman would have had five husbands. People died often in that time and in that day and that age. Life expectancy wasn't long, and she might have been just say, let's say unlucky. That's not the right term, but let's just say that. And had five husbands, and all of them died. That would be rough. And whatever reason she's living with the person she's living with now, there is probably a reason for that. Again, it might be a sinful reason. It might not be. We don't know. Because Jesus doesn't ever latch on to that and begin to talk to it. He doesn't reprove her for it. You notice that? Even the woman caught in adultery, right? What does Jesus say? Go and sin no more when he's done. But I just want to be fair to this woman. Jesus says it as a point of fact and then lets it go. That is true. You've had five husbands. The guy you're with now is not. So what's the purpose of him saying that other than just to be, you know, point out a fact that she's probably not very happy about? Well, certainly Jesus knows something that he's not supposed to know. He's a stranger. He's a stranger who's has no reason to be from that part of town, right? He's a Jew. She's a Samaritan. They don't hang out together. They don't have the same social circles. They don't have the same family circles. There's no reason whatsoever other than divine revelation that Jesus should know what he knows about this woman. What's interesting is, is when Jesus responds, he doesn't just say, you're right, you've had, right? He says, this is true. You have spoken the truth. Truth is important in the gospel of John. When people speak the truth, it is important, even if it is just the truth about themselves, which it is here. She could have lied, right? He's a stranger. She could have said, uh, he's on a fishing trip or out to lunch or he's dead. What? I mean, she, lots of different things she could have said, but she speaks truth. She's honest. 
not coincidental, I don't think. Because it draws her deeper into the conversation. No longer is it, sir, give me this water always because I am sick and tired of drawing water here. All of a sudden, this person is saying things he shouldn't know. There's no reason he should know this other than divine revelation. And so she responds as such. She goes further and deeper into the conversation. Sir, I can see you are a prophet. Surely you're not greater than our ancestor Jacob. Well, he's a prophet. Maybe he is greater than our ancestor Jacob. And so she asks him a question that you would ask a prophet. Again, much has been made of the question she asked. Well, she's being evasive, right? She doesn't want to talk about the husbands. And maybe that's true. But again, we have no indication from John that that is in fact the case. It is speculation. It's not bad speculation, but it's speculation. It's not the text. She switches subjects, but she asks an important question. She asks a deep question. She goes from family dynamics to prophet, to God's people, to, to proper worship. She cares about these things. When you have a prophet in front of you, you ask deep questions. And so she asks them a deep question. I can see you're, you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain. Mount Gerizim was the place where the temple that was built in Samaria to worship Yahweh was built. Again, if you kind of separate kingdoms, they had a, they had a, a national divorce, if you will. The, the Jews said, we're going to worship down in, in Jerusalem and everyone should. This is what God said. Well, the Samaritans up in the north said, well, we don't want to go down to your place to worship. Right? We're not, we're not going to send our kids to your place. We got to have our own. And so... A place was built on Mount Gerizim. This is Mount Gerizim to worship Yahweh. She says, we worship here and our ancestors worshiped here, but but you Jews say that we have to, to worship in Jerusalem. Which is it? Just notice the question. She doesn't presume that she is right. She asks a question that is troubling her. He's a Jew. He's a prophet, obviously. God is doing something. God has given him insight. So you ask the the pertinent question. She cares about right worship. This is not small. Right? She's just not some person evading the question. She is asking real and right and true questions. Is it not a good thing to say, how should we approach God? That's what she's asking. How do we approach God? Jesus goes on to say, well, you worship what you don't know, right? You're ignorant of the things of God. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. It's true. Jesus came through that line. But what Jesus says next is more intriguing. There's a time coming where you neither worship here, nor will you worship there. What the Father seeks is those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. I won't pretend to know all of that means. But I think at the very least, it means location matters little when worshiping God. What matters is the heart and the posture in which we come. A posture of truth. You have spoken truly, he said earlier. She has come to Jesus and spoken truth. And she is seeking, at least, I'm going to read it this way. You may read it differently, that's okay. But, but I read it this way, that she has come and she is seeking what is true, what is right, what is good, and what is holy. That's why she keeps asking Jesus questions, because she cares. And it matters to her. 
And he seems, she's, this is what we in the Wesleyan tradition would call prevenient grace, that, that something is drawing her to Jesus. And, and Jesus is in front of her, and she realizes that this is something she wants. She can't name it. She can't put a finger on it. But she knows that this is life. She knows that somehow the living water he offers is good and right. And he has the answers. And so she asks. She comes in truth, seeking not her agenda or not what she thinks is right, but genuinely asking what is right, what is good, what is true. So Jesus says, there's time is coming and it's truly now here where the location of worship doesn't matter nearly as much as the position of the heart of the person who is coming to Christ or to Jesus or to God in worship. Worship in spirit and in truth. Worship drawn by the spirit of God in truth. Seeking God, seeking God's direction, and seeking God's way. It's pretty amazing. And so the woman asks a deeper question. Our ancestors told us that a time is coming when a Messiah will come and he will explain all this to us. Again, is it evasive? Right? She sees the person in front of them and he says, well, you don't have to worship here or there. You will worship in spirit and in truth. And that is granted a sort of spiritual, ethereal, and nebulous concept. And, and maybe like many of us, she says, well, fortunately, a time is coming where someone else is going to tell us. When I asked my parents hard questions and questions they didn't know the answer to when they grew up, they said, well, you just have to ask Jesus when he comes. Like it wasn't being evasive. It was just like, we don't know the answer. And perhaps God only knows the answer to that question. So when he comes, he'll let you know. But right now we can't give you anything definitive on that. I mean, it, in, in opinion, it was a very wise answer because they didn't have the answers. No use lying to me. And it's almost as if that's what she's saying. She's like, well, I don't, I don't get it, and it's hard, and I don't, I'm not sure what's going on. And, and the Messiah will explain what that means and all this stuff to us when he comes. The Messiah will tell us. My parents always said that as, you know, like when we die, when Christ returns, and that was a time in the future. Right? We don't know now. Maybe someday we will. Paul says we see now in a glass darkly, but sometime we'll see him face to face, right? We'll know as we are known. What's great about it is Jesus looks at her and he says, I'm the one. He says, I am the one who is standing in front of you. She's saying the Messiah will tell us all this one day. And Jesus says, hey, it's me. It's me. I'm the one. How you doing? Good to meet you. All that she's been searching for, the living water, the answers to the questions, the Messiah, the one who was promised. Jesus says, it's me. That's, I'm the one. He uses, in fact, in the Greek, a phrase, ego me, which means I am. If you remember how Moses was answered, how God identified God's self when Moses said, who shall I say sent me? Tell them that I'm men. I am sent you. And so the, the way that Jesus phrases this and the way that he answers, not just here, but many other places in the gospel of John is using the divine name or at least hinting at the divine name to identify himself. This is not small. This is big. This is for anyone else. Blasphemy. 
right? This is the charge that was leveled against Jesus to get him on his way to the cross by the Jews. Jesus says, I am the one who is talking to you, is he? And just as things get good and get deep and get serious, guess who comes back? It's the disciples. They've got groceries. And we're told the woman leaves her jar there. She's got all the water she needs and goes back into town. And the scene shifts to, to Jesus and his disciples, and, and they kind of come up and they say, Jesus, we got your food, right? We've got takeout. Here's some Carl's Jr., whatever. Like, we got you some food. Are you hungry? And Jesus says, I'm not hungry. <laughs> Jesus, we went into town to get you something, right? We asked for your order, and now you're not hungry? <laughs> In fact, he says to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And what I love is their mind immediately goes to like, did someone bring him jerky? <laughs> right? We were gone for like 20 minutes, Jesus. Did, who brought you food? Was it that lady? Did she bring you food? Jesus, that's our job. Of course, she just goes on to explain my, my work, what, what I am fed by, what gives me life is to do the work and the will of God who sent me, right? My, my, my food is not bread alone, but every word and every command that comes from the mouth of God, right? Jesus is, is taking what he has already talked about and said, my food is to do what God has asked me to do. He says, I'm not going to waste time eating. I'm doing the work that God has called me to do. And then he goes on to say, you have a saying, four months and then the harvest, right? And and he begins to to use this metaphor and saying, look, the work of God is not somewhere out there. It's not then or there. It is here and it is now. You say four months more and then the harvest. And I tell you, I tell you the truth that the harvest is here. The harvest is now. And you are the workers in that harvest, You see, they went away, they got food, and they came back, and they saw Jesus talking to a woman, and nobody thought to ask him, well, they probably thought to ask him, but nobody dared to ask him why he was talking or what he was doing. They were scandalized and bothered by it, but they didn't bother to ask Jesus to explain. And if he had explained, they would have known. What he was doing was not having an idol or silly chat with a woman he wasn't supposed to talk to. What he is pointing at is saying, that there, what I was doing at the well with that woman, this is the harvest. This is what God sent me to do. You look and say, oh, it's a Samaritan woman, not worth our time or not able to talk to them. But, but Jesus says, what I see is the very work of God in our midst, and I am going to do it. Maybe if you had asked, you would have been a part of it. Think about it for a second. The disciples are the one who are supposed to be doing this thing. That's what he says. You are the workers. You're supposed to be bringing in the harvest. And I don't mean groceries. What I'm doing is the work of God. I asked her for a drink of water, and now she's in town talking about what she experienced here and inviting others to do the same. For we hear that when the woman went away, she went and she began knocking on doors. And said, come and see a man who had told me everything that I have done. 
Now, I don't know if that is, they had talked about more than the five husbands things, but, but she is impressed with him enough to say, this man has told me everything I have ever done. He knows things about me he ought not know. And then she says, could this be the one? Could this be the Messiah that we're expecting? Uh, Unlike so many others in the gospel, she sees and she experiences and she continues to ask questions. Could this be? She's thirsty for what Jesus has. He has offered her living water and she's ready to drink. And so now she brings, at least according to John, the entire town out to see Jesus. They all go to the well to drink of the living water. And they go out and they talk to Jesus and it says that many were saved. Many came to believe that he was the son of God because of the witness of the woman. Think about this contrast for a second. Jesus is at the well. His disciples go into town. They know Jesus. They have traveled with him. They have talked to him. They know all about him. What do they bring back from town? Groceries. Groceries are good. They're needed. We need to eat. But they bring groceries, and they don't get it. They think of physical food. They need physical food. They don't see what Jesus sees. They don't see the Samaritan village as a place that needs to hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's just a place to go get food. Somewhere they don't, probably don't want to be to get food because it's in, a, in that part of town. But Jesus talks to this person he shouldn't be talking to and offers her something that she is skeptical about and begins to have a conversation with this person who, who probably had not had an extended conversation with a Jew forever, maybe. She goes back into town. What she bring back to the well? an entire town who want to drink the living water. In fact, so much so that as they begin to meet Jesus, as Jesus spends a couple days with them, they say to her, you know, we came out here because we were curious. And we believed at first because of what you had said, but now we believe that this is the Son of God. We have believed because we have seen, we have tasted of the living water. And in them, in that town, this water wells up into springs of eternal life because this woman met Jesus at the well. Again, the disciples, these are the ones he chose, who he sent out. This woman is someone he shouldn't be talking to in a place he shouldn't be, and she becomes the, the disciple, the apostle, the evangelist because of her witness and her interaction with Jesus, the people come to know. They come to sample and to drink deeply of the waters of life. So why Lent? What do we pause at this time of year? What do we pause and consider what it means to be a child of God? Why do we pause and say, Lord, search me and know me? Because there are some times when I am woefully inadequate and terrible at identifying the harvest. I might sit around in my office and go, woe is me, Lord, where's the harvest you have promised? Lent is necessary 
because we come to texts like these and Jesus say, it's all around you, man. And it's often in the places you don't think you should be happening to the people who it shouldn't happen through. Disciples were, were, were men and products of their time. They didn't expect the harvest to be among the Samaritans. Elsewhere, they'll say, God, they rejected you. Should we call down fire on them? I mean, that's what they felt about Samaritans. Not worth their time. Not worth extended effort, perhaps. People who they had deep, deep prejudice against. And yet Jesus stops and he asks for a drink of water. And it's through that person. Someone who shouldn't be an evangelist. The whole town comes to know. For Jesus drew her and offered her living water. And so she found others and said, I know where we can get living water. Let's go see. We need to have revealed to us our own shortcomings that God might open our eyes to the harvest that is around us in all the places we expect and in all the places we don't. And we need Jesus to do that for us. For we're blind. We're hungry and thirsty and sometimes we don't realize what we have. We have tasted of the living water. Are we offering it to others? Even the people we may not think deserve it. But Jesus shows us that there is none who fall into that category. The undeserving. For we all need the living water that he has to offer. So as the worship team comes back up and as we sing this final song, I would ask you to take some time and think and ask God to search your heart. And to truly take time and ask God, God, where am I blind? Where am I refusing to see the harvest? Have I, have I drunk deep of this living water and yet kept it for myself? Have I looked at others as either unwilling, undeserving, or perhaps do I prejudge them as people who wouldn't listen anyway? Jesus says, the person who drinks will never be thirsty again. But that doesn't mean we don't need it anymore. We need the streams of living water welling up in us that we might be filled to overflowing and that we might offer others to come, to come taste these waters. And so... In this time, if you'd like to come and pray, either come here and say, God, I want those living waters. If you have not experienced that, it's awesome. And he still offers streams of water welling up into eternal life. And those streams of living water are him, are his self. 
for life is found in Jesus, and that is a well that never runs dry. You may want to come and ask for those waters for the first time. Or you may want to come and ask God to to search and try to know your heart, that you might be opened and that your eyes might be open to see the fields that are all around us. If it was true then, it is true now. Fields are white for the harvest. You, me, us, we are the workers called to gather in the harvest. Not because we're holy or right or good, but because we know where living water can be found. And so let's sing this final song and let's take the opportunity to seek, to search, to confess, and to drink deeply of the well that never runs dry.